The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. What an incredibly hard, confusing, and brutal week we've had. Seems like 2020 into 2021 at times can feel like we're moving from one confusing, painful, hard crisis to another. And in these moments, it can be so confusing. What do you say? And and even now in this moment, you might be wondering, are are you going to address it? Are we going to be able to come to church and be able to hear how God's Word would speak to us where we are in our time, in this moment? And at first... I was going to say that my pastoral letter on Wednesday was really what I wanted to say. If you don't get that, um, we we want you to be able to to have that and read that because that's where, in general, I plan to address us as a body with issues that are coming up so that we, we have a pastoral word for the moments that we're all part of. But then, as I got into the, this text, this word, I realized and saw so inescapably and so clearly it does speak. It does speak to where we are. It does talk to us about our moment and who we are as Christians. So I want to read this text. You're going to hear inescapably, I think, how it addresses us. But let's draw near to the Lord in prayer so that we're not trying to do this on our own. Let's pray together. Father, we feel like the disciples, those who were following Jesus, and hard things happen, and even hard things, confusing things were spoken, and many left. And Jesus, you looked at your disciples and said, do you want to leave too? And Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, with all that's confusing, I pray that we would look beyond, not just the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, the things that are not just temporary, but the things that are eternal. Oh God, only you can give us heaven's perspective. Lord, we know that we are hearing from from many people in many different corners, many different sides of the political aisle about what they think is happening. What we need to know is what you say, who you are, and therefore who we are in you. So speak, we pray. Give us a grace to listen and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I want you to turn with me there in your Bibles or electronic devices. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of the Lord. There's a question, isn't there, in the church today? When we look at Pentecost, what is it? We have entire movements of churches called Pentecostal churches. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Are, are we a Pentecostal church? Do we believe in Pentecost? To be able to answer that, we have to say, well, what is it? What is Pentecost? To know if we are, if we're a Pentecostal church, if we're really Pentecostal Christians. I think we have to dive into the text to understand it. So we begin, you see in verse 1, you're going to see the, the day of Pentecost in Verses 2 and 3, you're going to see the, the event of Pentecost. And in verse 4, you're going to see the result of Pentecost. So the day, verse 1, the event, verses 2 and 3, and the result, verse 4. So let's dive in. Number 1, look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And as we stressed last week, it doesn't say when they'd prayed enough, when they'd fasted enough, when they obeyed enough, when they gave enough, when they did anything enough, then Pentecost came. It was not in response to their prayers. It was not owing to something that they had done. They didn't earn Pentecost. It didn't merit it. it didn't produce it. Pentecost came not because of the prayers of the disciples, but because of the providence of God. The word here is Sumplerao, the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. It was a day on God's calendar, and it had come. And therefore, God is going to act. And that's going to be really important that we understand what that means. Pastor Bud, in a, uh, as we were talking as a staff about last week's sermon, he, I think, summarized the sermon better than I preached it last week. He said, we don't trust in prayer we trust in God, which is why we pray. We don't hope in prayer. We hope in God. We don't just pray. We believe in God, and therefore we pray. Hope in Him. So here, it's so important to see that this day is a day of fulfillment. This word shows up earlier in Luke-Acts, in Luke 9.51. And in that verse... It says, when the days drew near, literally, when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything that Jesus did was on God's timetable. There was a moment of fulfillment on the, the day of Passover when Jesus was supposed to be in Jerusalem. He's going to fulfill that. This is another day of fulfillment. He dies on Passover and something else happens on Pentecost. To understand this, you have to understand that in the Bible, when we say there's a, a prophecy and it is predicting or foretelling future events, there are two types of those prophecies. 
There are word prophecies, like we saw at Christmas when somebody says, well, where's Jesus supposed to be born? Well, in Bethlehem, because this prophecy in Micah says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you're by no means least of the the tribes of Judah, for from you will come a, a king. The scepter will be there. That's a word prophecy. But there's another type called a picture prophecy. Passover is a picture prophecy, and so is Pentecost. The picture is now giving us an anticipation of something that's coming. For example, the Jewish people celebrated three great harvest fests, harvest festivals. There was the Feast of Passover, there was the Feast of Weeks, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, on Passover, it had to be a lamb without blemish, without spot, that was offered. There had to be blood on the doorpost, you remember. All of that was a a picture that Jesus was fulfilling. And in the same way, this second feast, the Feast of Weeks, also had to be fulfilled. They called it the Feast of Weeks because it was a week of weeks, meaning seven week of seven weeks, meaning 49 days. And those 49 days happened after Passover. So 49 plus one after Passover equals 50, which is where we get the Greek word Pentecost, which means 50 or 50th. So 50 days after after Passover came Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, and it was a harvest festival. It was a day when they would travel and and go into the the wheat harvest, the wheat fields, and they would harvest the first fruits. And they would have two loaves that were offered together to symbolize that God had given them this harvest of bread, this harvest of wheat. And what we're going to find is that actually there's a different kind of harvest that God is doing at Pentecost. A harvest is happening on the day of harvest. That's what we're going to see. Now, what we're going to find then at the end of verse 1 is that as Luke sets this up, that there's a prophetic fulfillment about to happen on a day of harvest, he tells us about the background, like where, who are the people and where are they? He says at the end of verse 1, they were all together in one place. Who are all of these people and where are they? The who is really important because you might immediately think, well, is this just the, the 12 disciples? And the answer is no, clearly no. It is the 120 that have gathered together that have been praying in this one place, that is in the upper room that we learned about in chapter 1. These 120 people are gathering together. They are the 12 apostles and, Luke says, the women, like the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus, the women that followed Jesus during his ministry and even supported him. These 120 are gathered. That is going to be so important because what we learn 
is it's not just on the apostles that the Spirit comes and fills them. We learn from Joel 2 that all of God's people are going to prophesy. All of God's people are going to be filled with the Spirit. Not just those of high-rank apostles, but Joel's going to say on male servants and female servants from top to bottom, young and old, man and woman, the Spirit is going to come upon all Christians. So this is the group of 120, not just the apostles. That's going to matter in a moment. So here they are in the upper room, and what happens? Verses 2 to 3. Here's the event now of Pentecost where we have two heavenly signs. The first one comes in verse 2. There's a sound of wind that came from heaven, and then the effect, it filled the house. The second sign was the sight of these separated tongues of fire that came and, as a result, rested on each one of them. So read it with me, verses 2 and 3. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So there's, there's something that they hear. It's audible, a sound. And then secondly, there's something they see. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So you get the, the coming of the sign and then the result. First, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire place where they are. And then the sight of separated tongues as a fire, and these separated tongues are resting on each believer. So not only is this a fully sensory experience, you hear it and you see it, but this is a clearly supernatural sign. We already know that because it's coming from heaven, but there's even more happening here that Luke is showing us he's aware that this is a heavenly, transcendent, supernatural thing, and he is trying to find earthly analogies. Notice it was not this sound, it was not like a, a rushing wind. They heard the sound, but there's no wind. It's like a tornado hearing the sound of it without the destructive power of it. And Luke says it was like that. Or the same way, in terms of the, the tongues, he said it, it was as of fire. So it, it looked like fire, but it didn't have the properties, like it didn't burn them up. In other words, he's trying to show you, I'm very aware, Luke says, of how limited my language is to try in earthly words to describe these heavenly things that are coming. All I can say, it was like this. It was as this. So don't mistake this to say there was a, a literal wind, there was a literal fire. He's, he's saying this was a sign. And I'm trying to use earthly analogies like this, as of this, to describe it. But there's even more happening here because they have a divine double meaning. 
If you take the first one, it's the sound of wind. A tornado coming would not just sound like something, it would destroy the entire room where they're sitting. That, that's not this. Because in the Bible, when you have God appear, He's often accompanied by wind. For example, 1 Kings 19, Isaiah 66, 15, wind signals the coming of the divine presence, but it's even fuller than that because the, the divine person that's coming is the spirit, the wind. In the Greek language, the word for spirit, pneuma, is also the word for wind. The, the, the wind is not of God is not just accompanying God's presence, it is God's presence, the spirit. The breath of God has come. And like a tornado that brings death and destruction, no, this Spirit brings life and healing. So the Spirit is coming, symbolized by the sound of mighty wind. You're not going to picture the Spirit with some little of wind. Mighty life-giving wind has come. Or the second sign, the sight of tongues of fire. Remember, in the same way that wind would often accompany the presence of God, fire in the Bible is also a sign of the presence of God. Remember the burning bush, the sign of God's presence, often signified by fire. Exodus 3, Exodus 19, 1 Kings 18, Ezekiel chapter 1. So you have the fire which is saying God's presence is coming, but it goes further than that because the, the sign here is a tongue of fire. Now, just like in the English language, in the Greek language, tongue could refer to the literal physical apparatus in your mouth, or it could refer to what comes from the tongue, that is, language, speaking. So the tongue becomes the instrument of speech, and that is exactly what this is signifying. This Pentecost is going to be about speaking. So many people automatically just reduce it to, oh, I know what it's about, speaking in tongues. Just hang with me, because it says a ton more than that. So here we see now the day has been set up, the event has happened with these heavenly signs, and now we're going to see the result of all of this in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, there's the tongue, speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is an amazing moment, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, you've had the Spirit coming upon people like Moses or even the 70 elders, and they're on the leaders, or the Spirit might come upon Saul or David as king, or the Spirit might come upon the prophets. Never before are you going to have the Spirit on all people, top to bottom, high and low, men and women, this is a moment that was predicted and prefigured in the Old Testament when the Spirit, you got Solomon's temple and God's presence, God's Spirit comes and dwells there. 
This is something even more momentous because each believer becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is filling each temple that is each believer, which is why this sign is resting on each believer. They're all filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. And and now, what happens? The result, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, you've got to ask a question here. What does it mean, speak? We know what that means, but what are they speaking? Other tongues. What is that? What language are we talking about? So, are we talking about something that we might read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, like a, a heavenly ecstatic language? Or are we talking about human language? The answer here is clearly we're talking about human language. Verse 4 is a little ambiguous. It could be, are we talking about the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? Are we talking about tongues like human languages? And that ambiguity is completely removed in verses 6 and 8. Verse 6 and verse 8 say that these are dialectos, that is, dialects. They are human languages, dialects. Therefore, what's happening that these disciples are speaking in other human languages, and the other clue for that is not just the word dialect in verse 6 and verse 8, but it's there in verse 4, they speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them, here's the word, utterance. And that word for utterance is the verb to utter shows up all, the, all over the place in the Old Testament for human prophetic language. This is the word for intelligible human prophecy. So what's happening is that these believers, each a temple of the Spirit now, are filled with God's presence, the Spirit of God, and they're speaking in languages they don't know, other dialects. Now note, please, when we see the result of this, the people are just blown away. Like, we hear, we hear them saying the mighty works of God in our dialects. This is the sign that now is going to draw a crowd, and they come around and they say, wait a minute, I, I hear them speaking my language, but they're Galileans. Now remember, Galileans were not known for their great academic and linguistic ability. They often were ridiculed as people having a thick accent and kind of were degraded as being kind of a, a backwoods, backwards, country bumpkin kind of people, not the scholarly elites, and, and they're just shocked by this. They're hearing the mighty works of God in their own languages. And Kenny's going to talk about this next week. There are Jews coming from, and as you trace all of these places, literally the four corners of the world. The, the ends of the earth of the Jewish people are coming here for Pentecost, and now each of them having their own distinct dialect from all over the world are hearing them 
speak these languages. Now, some people say, oh, this must be a miracle of hearing, that the Spirit's somehow on the crowd. No, 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 no. Don't miss the whole point of this. The crowd, as we're going to find out at the end of the Peter's sermon, they're not Christians. They're not believers. The Spirit's not coming on them and giving them the miracle of hearing. The Spirit, as we see in verse 4, is coming upon Christians. And these Christians, filled with the Spirit as the temple of the Holy Spirit, are speaking in these languages as the Spirit gives them ability. So they're speaking the languages. That's the miracle. And as a result of that miracle... Jews from the four corners of the world with every dialect around the world are hearing them speak in their language. This is the miracle that's happening at Pentecost. So now comes the question. And they raise the question in verse 13. What does all of this mean? What is Pentecost all about? I want to answer that. Pentecost is an identity marker for the church. Pentecost is not just an event. And I don't want you to think that, oh, I know what Pentecost means. Pentecost means speaking in tongues by the Spirit. That's what it means. Some people really think that. They really do. They really think that if you're a Christian and you're filled with the Spirit, the the evidence of that is that you speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you really don't have the Holy Spirit. And you're definitely not a Pentecostal Christian unless you speak in tongues. With all due respect, that is not what Pentecost is. And I can prove it to you. If you look all around this text to find out, let the Bible say what Pentecost is, we're going to do something that shouldn't be controversial at all. If you want to know what Pentecost is, don't just look at verses 1 to 4. Look at what comes before it. Look at what comes after it, and then look again at what's there. That's what we're going to do. What comes before it, what comes after it, and then we'll look back at verses 1 to 4. Here's what Pentecost is. When you go back to chapter 1 and you let Jesus define Pentecost, it's not as if he's been unclear. What Jesus has been saying all along is that you've got to wait in Jerusalem for this day to come because what is going to be is power from on high. To do what? To speak in tongues? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is the coming of the Spirit upon disciples to be witnesses of Jesus all over the world. That's what it is. That's the way Jesus defined it. Power from on high to be witnesses. So you're speaking, yes, but not speaking in tongues, speaking of Jesus. The Spirit has come so that Christians do that. Not only in one place, but everywhere. That's the way Jesus defined it. He didn't say a thing about speaking in tongues. Now, why this is so important is because if we're following Jesus, we already have the idea in our head then, okay, Pentecost, the foundational reality of it, 
cannot be separated from speaking of Jesus as witnesses. The Spirit's coming upon us to do that. Okay, let's just log that now, and now let's test that. Let's go forward, because when they ask in verse 13, what does all this mean? Peter doesn't leave him hanging. He tells him, here's what this means. So as we read forward now, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he tells us exactly what this is. And he doesn't say, oh, this is speaking in heavenly languages. He goes to Joel 2, and he says, this right here is that. It's fulfillment. It's exactly what God promised would happen. What is that? Remember in Joel chapter 2 what it is that will happen on the last days when the Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2 verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That just happened in verse 4. What's the result? And your sons and daughters shall speak in tongues. No. Shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will what? Prophesy. So for Peter, Pentecost fulfilling what Joel had promised, God promised through Joel, was that what this is, is the Spirit of God coming upon all God's people, young and old, high status or low status, man or woman, all of them having the Spirit and will do what? Prophesy. He repeats it twice so we don't miss it. Everyone will prophesy. Now we got a big problem. Because if you're only thinking of speaking in tongues and prophecy in the 1 Corinthians 12 sense, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29 says, not all speak in tongues. Not all prophesy. These are all gifts given by the Spirit individually as He wills, and He doesn't will for everyone to prophesy like the 1 Corinthians 12 prophecy. He doesn't will for all Christians to speak in tongues like the 1 Corinthians 12 speaking in tongues. So we know we're talking about something different. Can we just all agree there? Otherwise, Scripture is contradicting itself. When Paul says, not everybody, everybody does this, and Joel says, and Peter says, everybody's going to do this. So the question is, what kind of prophecy is this that all of God's people will do? And the answer can be found in the rest of Peter's sermon because he doesn't end there. He says, David did this. David was a prophet. And then he goes to Psalm 16 and to Psalm 110 to show how David was a prophet. Psalm 16, he says, David spoke about somebody that was not going to see corruption. And then he says, David wasn't talking about himself, that he would not be abandoned to the grave or see corruption because if, if it is, we've got a big problem. His grave is right here and everybody knows where it is. But he was a prophet and he spoke beforehand of the resurrection of the Christ saying he would not be abandoned 
to the grave. His flesh would not see corruption. You see what's happening? David prophesied, spoke beforehand of what the Christ would do in the resurrection. Peter's saying, and we're witnesses of it. David saw it beforehand, and we saw it happen. And then he goes to Psalm 110, another psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And Jesus is the same one that did this. He said, David can't be the Lord here because David's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. Well, if the Lord is God the Father, then who is the my Lord? And it's Jesus. God the Father, the Lord, says to David's Lord, Jesus, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter's point, unmistakably clear. David was a prophet. He spoke beforehand of the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. And now in the sermon, what does he do? He says, we're witnesses of this. What David saw ahead of time, we saw happen in time. We saw him rise. We saw him ascend. We're witnesses of this. In other words, the prophecy we're talking about is that all Christians have this prophetic mantle to speak Jesus, what only some people in the Old Testament did, like David, speaking of Christ beforehand, every Christian does after the fact because we're all witnesses that he died and that he rose and that he ascends, and we all are given the Spirit to witness to that. That's what Peter's talking about. And when it happens, well, what happens? When the Spirit comes, for God's people to testify of Jesus. What happens? Look at Joel's prophecy and the last words of it. Verse 21 of Acts 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter's saying, this is being fulfilled. When the Spirit comes upon all God's people, all 120 of them right here, we're going to speak as witnesses of Jesus, and it's time for everyone to call in his name and be saved. And Peter's saying, what David spoke about beforehand as the Christ, we've seen him rise, we've seen him ascend, and we know his name. You can really call upon his name. His name is Jesus. And what happened? If everyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, what happened? 3,000 people called on the name of the Lord and were saved and were baptized. This is Pentecost. Now, just to prove it one step further that this is what Pentecost is, let's then go back to verses 1 to 4 and see if it's all fitting together. Because remember, what verse 1 says is that Pentecost is a picture prophecy being fulfilled. What is it? It's a harvest. It's a harvest fest. It all fits, doesn't it? 
On the day of Pentecost, the day of Harvest Fest, what happens is that God's Spirit comes, so a harvest happens when people speak of Jesus and receive Jesus by the Spirit. That's Pentecost. And it's not just any old harvest. Remember, the Feast of Pentecost was the harvest of the first fruits. This is so important. In the history of the church, there's more than 3,000 people who have been saved. He's saying this was the first of the harvest, of a much greater harvest to come. The first harvest in Jerusalem, there's more coming in Jerusalem as day after day he adds to the number of those who are being saved. There's more that are going to be saved in Judea and Samaria. There's more that are going to be saved to the ends of the earth and be baptized. There's more that are going to be saved and be baptized even in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is a feast saying a harvest is happening when the Spirit comes and people speak Jesus and receive Jesus by His Spirit. That's Pentecost. So the question for us is, are we a Pentecostal church? Are we Pentecostal Christians? Pentecost is not about speaking in tongues. It's about speaking Jesus. And it's about speaking Jesus in the power of the Spirit so that a harvest happens and people receive Him. And they believe in His name. And they're baptized. So are we a Pentecostal church? Well, let me ask it a different way. Are we a church in which young and old, men and women, whether pastor or person in the pew, all have the Spirit and all speak Jesus. That's what it means to be a Pentecostal church. Every believer speaking Jesus to others by the Spirit not just the clergy, as if there's some clergy-laity distinction. I mean, let's, let's just think about this for a minute. This is so powerfully profound. When we talk about the priesthood of all believers in the new covenant, what are we saying? We don't need priests anymore because we have direct access to God ourselves. Every believer is a priest and has direct access to God. Guess what Pentecost is? The prophethood of all believers. I think I made that word up. Prophethood. Just like we're all priests, we're all prophets. That's Pentecost. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit now, given the commission to be His witnesses. And what the prophets of the Old Testament did in speaking beforehand of Jesus, we're His witnesses speaking after the fact of saying, we've seen it. We've seen him die. We've seen him rise. We know he's risen and ascended, and my whole life has changed. I'm a witness to it. Every Pentecostal Christian is one that speaks Jesus by the Spirit, young and old, man and woman, every believer. But it's more than that. And here's where I think this hits us where we are. What we all witnessed on Wednesday, deeply confusing, 
deeply troubling. But I think we can agree that the most horrific thing we saw when people stormed the Capitol was not just that some did it in the name of Trump, but that they did it in the name of Jesus. So that what so deeply offended me, and hopefully you, was to see the symbols of Christianity placarded everywhere by those storming the Capitol building. Here's the cross. Here's the sign, Jesus saves. Jesus and Trump, choose you this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we will serve. Yeah, who? Isn't this the question? When the symbols of Christianity get falsely fused together with the symbols of political identity, those who love the name of Jesus have to pull them apart. And we have to say, that ain't Jesus. That cross there, that ain't Jesus. He's not telling you to insurrect anything. If he were there and somebody got shot, he'd heal him. Just like when Peter takes out the sword, cuts off the slave's ear of the high priest, and Jesus says, put that sword back. Those who live by the sword will die by it, and he heals a person's ear. Peter learned the hard way. Jesus isn't commanding insurrection. So when the cross is lifted up there and all that's happening, the prophets of the Lord Jesus, given the prophetic mantle, need to be able to step up and say, not only we're witnesses of Jesus, we say, and that ain't it. So that when we see other symbols, like of racial oppression, the noose and the Confederate flag, we're also able to say, and that ain't Jesus either. Because what we find out Pentecost means is it doesn't just happen for the Jews Then it happens to the people they hate, like the Samaritans, and the people they hate even more, the Gentiles. And when it comes, and the Spirit falls, and the Gentiles in accent speak in tongues, the Jewish believers say, we can't forbid them from being baptized if they got exactly what we got. This this almost humorous moment where they say, do we have to give God permission for what he just did? They're like, we got to get on this side of things then and put our hands on these Gentiles and say, you're family too. Which is why throughout our history, what should trouble us more than anything else is when the symbols of our identity are co-opted and placed as part of things that are anti-Jesus. I feel the same way when I see the Ku Klux Klan raising a burning flag and having a, 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 a thing behind it saying, Jesus saves. The prophetic mantle that falls upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have it by the Spirit to not only say we're witnesses of Jesus, but also to say, and that ain't it, and that's not it, and that's not it. Because 
Dear friends, no matter what political affiliation you are, whether you're pro-Trump or pro-Biden or pro-Democrat or pro-Republican or whatever, oh, the Christian church can agree, yes, Jesus saves, but he does it through a cross, not a president, not a power play on the Capitol. What we witness with the Christian faith and Christian identity is better seen in a Christian baptism, not a Capitol building. What we know as Christians is that he doesn't need the Capitol building because the government is already on his shoulders. He already owns it all. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We've got to speak with prophetic clarity. And the first and foremost thing of prophetic clarity is gospel clarity, Jesus clarity. The church has to be able to say, this is who he is, this is what we believe, and we are not going to let Jesus be roped in with that. That ain't it. This is it. Whoever would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, regardless of where you grew up, regardless of what you've ever done, regardless of how you've ever voted, if you believe in Jesus, what he did on the cross to forgive you of all of your sins and that he rose from the dead and defeated death for us so that we would belong to him and have a future. Whoever will confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart, yes, we're witnesses. God did raise him from the dead. You will be saved. Pentecostal clarity gospel clarity. Repent and believe in him. That's who we are. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we as a church would boast only in the cross. That we would say it's not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That we would believe that apart from the Spirit, nobody can say Jesus is Lord. So God, make us a Pentecostal church. Let us grow into this prophetic mantle that we're witnesses of Jesus. And when we speak him by the Spirit, people receive him by the Spirit. And there is a harvest of those who come to know you and belong to you and our family with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.